Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Athlete Voices podcast. I am your host, Belisha Tang. This week, I am very excited to have on the podcast Julie Zetlin. Julie is a former American rhythmic gymnast. She is the 2010 U.S. Senior National Champion and represented the U.S. at the 2012 Olympic Games. In 2015, she was inducted into the USA Gymnastics Hall of Fame. In this interview, Julie and I talk about her experience competing with a broken foot at the Olympics, the importance of mental performance training as an athlete, her transition out of gymnastics, and her current role as a fitness industry specialist. Everybody, please welcome to the podcast, Julie Zetlin. Hi, Julie. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited for this. Um, Me too. Hold on. I don't know why it's not showing me. Okay, no problem. Oh, wait. Hold on. I found it. (laughs) Doing it on my phone. Sorry, I look like a mess. I just exercised. (laughs) No problem. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for hopping on the podcast. Of course. I'm, I'm so excited to do these things. Yeah. Uh, before we start, I just wanted to say that I met you in person. I don't, I have no idea if you remember. Yeah, it was, I think it was in 2017. Um, it was a competition, Burlow Gymnastics hosting, Mm -hmm. and I was in the audience and I think you were coaching there. I think I was, if it was 2017, I was coaching. Yes. And then I saw you and I recognized you and I was like, can I have a picture? You probably don't remember me, but yeah, I thought I'd share that. Oh, well, I mean, I never understood, um, you know, the girls, the, the athletes or former athletes that like wouldn't want to take pictures or sign autographs with their fans. Um, because that actually happened to me when I was little, mm-hmm. I went to, I won't name the gymnast. It wasn't yeah. an American gymnast but it was an international gymnast and I was you know of course I idolized this girl and she said no to my um autograph and picture request so I was like heartbroken so I was like if I ever yeah I was like if I ever become you know a half decent gymnast I would never deny a little girl um the opportunity to take a picture I never thought I would get to that point um and but you I did. did. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm glad you remember that fondly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, thank you for that. And I want to talk about your career, a very illustrious career that culminated in the 2012 Olympic Games. You were oh, yeah, in the U.S. I would love to hear your experience there. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk about how you started in rhythmic gymnastics. What age did you start and how did you get into the sport? So I started when I was probably like three or four years old. Um, and I actually started with artistic gymnastics, um, you know, because it still is and was the more popular outlet of gymnastics but my mom is a European she was a European rhythmic gymnast um Mm -hmm. Hungarian so um she was a junior national champion actually in Hungary and um you know I don't think she really knew that there was any choice of doing rhythmic gymnastics in the states so I uh this is back in 93 or 94 so a long time ago um so I started with artistic gymnastics and then my mom realized that there are um, rhythmic facilities and rhythmic gyms here in Maryland. Um, This was again, back in the nineties. So she just wanted to see if I would like it. Um, She wasn't going to force me to do anything that I didn't want to do. And I had natural energy to do sports. Um, She couldn't really hold me down because I was so wild. Um, I was one of those (laughs) really active, hyper little girls. But not in really my memory, but of how she retells the story. Um, the day I stepped foot into a rhythmic gym, I apparently was super mesmerized, which seems really accurate because um, I, I've always fallen in love. My love for rhythmic still is alive to this day. I think there's no sport that really captures the essence of and beauty of rhythmic gymnastics. But so I walked in and I just was mesmerized by the older girls. And as she was talking to the former head coach of my 
old team. Um, uh, she was, you know, talking and they didn't really pay attention. And I apparently disappeared and went onto the carpet and started trying <laughs> gymnastics with the older girls. And they were a bunch of um, national team members. And they apparently just were like, oh, let her do her thing. So I kind of chose it. Um, and the rest is kind of history. Um, my mom, of course, was super happy that I loved it. Um, because again, that's what she did in her upbringing in, in Hungary. Um, but never did I think anybody really um, think that I would get far because I was uh, very much built like an artistic gymnast. Um, when I was little, I was um, really, really muscular and a little bit shorter um, and not flexible at all. So um, the continued thing I kept on hearing from other coaches to my coach is like, why are you wasting your time with her? She's not going to get anywhere. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. And uh, I, I believed that. I mean, I knew what I lacked you know I lacked that kind of hyper flexibility that a lot of rhythmic girls have but I was strong so I knew where my strengths were and I you know working with my coach that I ended up with who pretty much was with me my whole entire career I was like let's work with my strengths which is <clears throat> I'm strong so that's when I realized I can jump and I can do jumps that nobody else really can the turning um, switch leap I remember that one yeah, nobody to this day, nobody really does it. I don't even think like, I think the code of points has just changed so much that, you know, it's all about apparatus nowadays, mm -hmm. about body difficulty. But back then, when I was competing, it was mainly about body difficulty. Um, and that was like, the highest element, highest jump in the code of points. So learning that I had that and learning that I had good body technique, because I did a lot, a lot, a lot of ballet. Um, we use that to my advantage and, you know, eventually you can kind of create flexibility <laughs> depending mm -hmm. on how hard you're willing to push yourself. Um, and I, I guess I got the right or enough flexibility that I needed to. So that's kind of how I got, um, my start. Um, it just kind of all kind of fast forwarded to like the later or later on moments to my career. But um, yeah, for a long time, I really lacked a lot of confidence. Um, because again, when you keep hearing as a young girl, that you don't have what it takes, you you start to believe it. Mm -hmm. And I remember I'd get really, really nervous. Um, when I was starting to travel internationally, even though yeah. I was you know, already on the junior team, um, because I would go internationally. And in the back, I'd see all these like, girls from different countries being super flexible but then I didn't realize when I would do my jumps they would look at me like I guess I was like <laughs> some crazy girl that does something unique um but I only really started to gather the confidence once um we started training with the Russian team mm -hmm. and um you know I was just so happy my first year as a senior to make it onto the senior national team like that was my goal I was like, can I go from junior team to senior national team? And if I can keep doing that, like, I'll be happy. I never thought in a million years it'd be like taking me down the road to and path to like national champion, world championship, yeah. and American games. Um, and then at our very first training camp with the Russian team, um, Irina Viner, who is mm -hmm. still a coach, um, pulled me aside and said, this is the girl that has what it takes to bring the U.S. team to the Olympics one day. And I was wow. like, wow, wow. I was so shocked. And I, I thought I misheard her, honestly. <sighs> like, I, I, I thought there was no way ever. I mean, it was one of my biggest, wildest dreams, right? But yeah. I never thought in this lifetime, only in my dreams when I was asleep, I thought I could only see myself going to the Olympics. And that was I think the first time I started to kind of build some confidence when you have the most prestigious coach in the world telling mm -hmm. you, you have what it takes and that you should be going to the Olympics. Then you're like, okay, reality check. I guess I am capable of doing this one day. Yeah. But I was already at that point, I was already 15, 16 years old. So it took me a really long time to really build up the mental strength and and um mental strength to believe that like that was something i could do
Mm-hmm. That was kind of where I was like, okay, let's make this dream a reality now. Yeah. And there were a bunch of highs and lows from age 15, 16 to age 22. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of which were injuries. Um, I don't know what the world really knows other than my scores, right? And my performance at international competitions. But mm-hmm. um, I had two knee surgeries um, during my career. The first one, I was still in high school. So I was, I was how old? I was 14. Hmm. And the second knee surgery, it was 20. And it was the year to qualify for the Olympics. So I competed in the international circuit in the winter and spring. And then after my final World Cup, or not my final, I kind of finished my World Cup cycle early. Um, I had learned that I had uh, torn my meniscus again. And mm-hmm. my doctor said the best chance she has to be able to be healthy in London or try to qualify for the Olympics is doing the surgery immediately. Um, and my first competition back was World Championships of Qualification for wow. the Olympics. Wow. So that's what most people don't know or hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they just uh, think I got the wild card and, you know, that I barely made it, which is true. But it was almost a blessing in disguise because, you know, I got the wild card to compete at the Olympics. And that's really special because when you get the wild card, it's awarded to a person. It's not awarded to a country. So nobody could take my spot once I got the wild card, which is mm-hmm. like a blessing. Um, and with all sorts of interesting things with judging and politics, you just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. So that was kind of a blessing in disguise. Um, and m- the first time I jumped post-surgery was at world championships. Wow. No way. That's first time I jumped. First time wow. I did a full routine post-surgery. I had no idea what to expect. I couldn't even yeah. do full routines two weeks before the competition. So wow. I don't like I got the wild card. It was all a wild card gamble of what was going to happen uh, at that world championships in uh, 2000. It was 11. 11. Mm-hmm. It game because, you know, I wasn't yeah. training like my competitors. I couldn't train like my competitors. Um, I wasn't a hundred percent healthy. Um, so it was, I had no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. So then that happened and, you know, there were other injuries along the way. I tore ligaments in my feet. Uh, I broke my feet. <laughs> so many things. Oh. Um, uh, so, but that really could have uh, broken my career when it really, really mattered. Um, Talk about pressure. Yeah. Pressure. Yeah. And then um, what other people probably don't know, um, it depends if they read these interviews, um, because I still remember the headlines in the the paper um that I faltered at the Olympics, right? I messed up, um, was that I was competing with a broken foot. So, wow. How <laughs> so, do you do that? How do you even jump with a broken foot? That's um, insane. You know, so I'll tell you the story of that. So I was feeling so good right before the Olympics. I was like, my body feels good, I feel strong, my stamina is great. I was hitting all my routines. And then maybe two weeks prior to leaving, um, I have like a, my coach, obviously, and an athletic trainer, which is a like kind of like a physical therapist, um, just to make sure I stayed healthy and God forbid if anything happened. So I had an athletic trainer staying with me literally at my house um, to take care of me and my body (laughs) Mm -hmm. before I competed. And then like two weeks out, maybe 10 days out, I started feeling like horrible pain in my takeoff foot um for jumps um and I was just like it must be overuse it must be overuse um and uh with all all of them you know really um glamorous parts of rhythmic gymnastics obviously not obviously I hope things have changed um I was on um pretty um let me find my wording wisely (laughs) I was probably not uh following the best nutrition that an athlete should Mm. it was so my body also was not going off of a lot of nutrition food Mm -hmm. 
things to sustain my training. So after a while, I was like, it just hurt to walk. It, it, it hurt all the time. So, um, I, but in my head, I'm like, it's just overuse. It's just overuse. And then fast forward to going to London, I guess USA Gymnastics set up appointments for me when I was in the air. Cause when I landed in London, I was told by our press secretary, um, I forget her name, but, and I don't know if she's still there, but the USA Gymnastics press secretary, she's like, so you're going to get off the plane. You're going to go on. Um, I think it was like, good morning, America. Um, you're going to do a segment. They're going to put you in makeup. You're going to do the segment and then you're going to go to get an x-ray. So that was my, like literally I landed. I got my credential. I did the interview, got in makeup, did the interview and everything. Then right after the interview in full makeup, um, in like my team USA gear, I went to the facilities where like the um, medical area was the medical tent at the Olympic village. And they're like, well, let's do your x-ray. And they were like, well, this is a stress fracture, but it's about to become a clean break. Like the oh next my. landing. Yeah. They're like the next landing you have um, after a jump, it's going to probably just break completely because wow. I remember the, the image. It was like, you know, the edge of the bone pretend is like my finger and the crack was like maybe all the way up practically to the knuckle. Mm. Um, so I was told I have options. I can scratch. And then the mm -hmm. next wild card person will get my spot. That doesn't that doesn't mean it's an American. It's just whoever is the next wild card or I can compete. And I said, well, nobody's going to take my spot. I'm going to compete. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, what can I do? Like, what what kind of painkillers can I take? What how can, can we treat this? And, you know, with drug testing, you really can't you're really limited to what you can consume. So I think I was able to take Tylenol. Mm -hmm. That was it. And wrap my foot up really, really tight with medical tape and all sorts of things. And then when I wasn't training, I was in bed rest. So I wasn't allowed to really do much. I was laying down in bed, not really exploring. <laughs> um, and if I had to walk anywhere, like the cafeteria or anything, I was walking around in a boot. Wow. So you see this athlete walking around and you probably think, oh, this is probably like an alternate or somebody who's not competing because they look pretty injured or broken. Um, mm. but that was just what I had to do before competing. And, uh, the first day of competition, you know, that's all that consumed my mind. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. All I was thinking is like, I have a broken foot and I'm so nervous. And I know I have so many people counting on me, um, friends, family, but mainly like everyone in the sport, right. Cause the Olympic games before, um, we had nobody represent the U.S. in right. rhythmic gymnastics. So I was like, I have such a big job to do, and I don't want to disappoint anybody. And with that thought process, nobody can perform to the best of their ability. Mm. When thinking about, honestly, other people or competing against other people or when you're not thinking about yourself, and it sounds really selfish, but when you're not thinking about the things you can control, then it all slips out of your fingers. Like, Mm -hmm. you lose reach of what you can control. So after the first day, I remember um, really vividly being so disappointed in myself. I dropped my ball. I was just like, I have one day left. It's like one day left of my career because I knew after the Olympics I was going to retire. I was like, can I suck up the pain, you know, for three more minutes because each routine is a minute and 30 seconds. I was like, can I suck up the pain for three more minutes, like on the competition carpet? And I was like, what's the worst going to, what's the worst that can happen if I, you know, continue to compete? They're like, nothing, you know, your foot's broken. You're not going to cause any permanent injuries, but you're going to mm -hmm. be in max pain. So I think they were urging me to, to, again, pull out after the first day and scratch. And I was like, no, I have a job to do. And I've worked so hard for so many years because my my career was 18 years long. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just have to do this for myself. Like, I know how many people are counting on me, but at this point, I can't worry about that because other people, other components, again, that's out of my control. I can only control what I do on the carpet mm -hmm. and I can control how I feel, what my mental state is. Um, so the second day, somehow, broken foot and all, 
I don't remember feeling any pain. Um, mm. I just went out there. I was so nervous, shaking, of course. Like, I felt like I couldn't breathe. But I was just like, just perform. Do what you know how to do. For me, that was making it a performance and not a routine, right? So many gymnasts are so mechanical, technical. They don't look like they're performing. They look like they're doing a gymnastics routine. They mm -hmm. don't look like they're doing something from their heart. So that was another strength of mine. I could jump and I could perform. Mm -hmm. I didn't have all the other things that rhythmic gymnasts needed, but I definitely knew how to perform my routine and, and tell a story. Mm -hmm. So I did. And the second day was pretty good considering the circumstances, no big mistakes, maybe only like small mistakes that I knew about. Um, but nothing really big. I didn't drop anything. I performed my routines to my, the best of my ability. Um, and I don't remember feeling any pain. And I just remember after my second routine, um, knowing it was all over, you know? Yeah. Knowing it was over, looking at my family in the audience, um, and then seeing my coach and then crying. So yeah. <laughs> I get emotional talking about it. Sorry. Wow. So, wow. Um, but I knew I, I did everything that I could. So um, the second day really tied up my career with like a bow. Um, yeah. And I, I just knew that like, if I can just inspire future generations and pave the way, you know, for athletes, rhythmic gymnasts, girls to just know that it's possible to do anything, mm -hmm. then I did my job because I thought it was impossible to get there because so many people told me it was right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was always my mission. Um, and I say that cause I'm in the fitness business now. Mm. And I tell that to my clients and I tell that to little girls, especially when I was coaching, I'm not coaching gymnastics anymore, but I was like, you can do anything. Anybody can do anything if they want to do it. Like you can blame yourself, your family or whatever for not having natural gifts, for not having resources for certain things. But if you want something, anybody's capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. You just have to want it bad enough to not let anything or anybody get in your way yeah because again if I would have believed everybody <laughs> then I don't think I would have made it um yeah because I was told for years and years and years and years that I just didn't have what it takes um but I just love the sport so much that nobody's negative words or actions got in my way so Anybody can do anything if they want to, if they work hard enough. <laughs> yeah, that's so inspiring. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. It's a long story. <laughs> yeah, no. And there's a lot, like you said, that people don't know that happened behind the scenes. And I'm still in in awe that you competed at the Olympics with a broken foot. Um, you're so brave for following through with that, you know? And it was scary. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't imagine. And so you were the first U.S. gymnast to compete at the Olympics in a while, right? Yeah, um, we had nobody the cycle before. And I tried to make it the cycle before, but nobody made it the cycle before. And naturally, you know, a lot of rhythmic girls and I think it's starting to change now in the U.S., but mm -hmm. especially when I was training, like most girls stopped you know, at 17 or 18, because mm -hmm. it's hard, like there's no collegiate level of rhythmic gymnastics. So right. you either compete and try to go to university at the same time, or you take time off, which is what I did. I completely took time off um, from going to college and just did all after I was retired and everything. Um, but now I'm noticing like girls are sticking around for a lot longer, yeah. which is really incredible. Um, and I'm so happy that they can see that you really peak and mature as a gymnast as you get older. Um, it's kind of like ballet, right? You go, you see the ballet, and most of the prima ballerinas in their 20s, right? And I think that's very similar um, for rhythmic gymnastics. You really age like a fine wine as you get older. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. And you really find like your maturity as a gymnast, like your sweet spot, what you love to do, how you like to perform as you get older. Um, so I'm happy that people are doing that. And now, um, you know, we're doing so much better in, on the international stage and we are really striving and having two gymnasts represent the country instead of just yeah. one. But yeah, nobody made it in 2008. So there was a big gap and there was a big, I felt like responsibility. Like yeah. I had to make it in 2012 because otherwise that would have set us even further back, you know, for the years to come. Mm-hmm. Because as you know, like anything that's judged, whether it's, or there's a referee, right? Anytime that like, it's down to the human eye of putting somebody in a rank, right? Or ranking people, it can be political. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we would have had another cycle, another four years where there was no American, I really feel like, you know, politically, you know, stature wise, reputation wise, it would have set us back and also like mentally for the girls. So yeah. it was a big, I felt like it was really my job obviously I had, a, I had my own dreams that I wanted to do it for, but I also felt like it was a, there was a bigger picture too. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, rhythmic is very common sport in Eastern Europe, predominantly um, historically. And in the U S it's a younger sport, right? And during the time you were competing, it wasn't as prominent in the U S as it is now. And right. Right. And you obviously you were like the only gymnast, the only U.S. gymnast going now. Now there's two like Evita and Laura retired. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know who the second gymnast is now, but at least there's multiple U.S. gymnasts competing, um, representing the U.S. You were the only one right at the Olympics. And that must have been a big burden. Right. It was. um you know, I feel like it would have been less of a burden had I not known that my body is breaking down on me. Um, because again, the the concept of of two U.S. gymnasts at the Olympics was almost, I think, to us back then was an impossible thought. So um, I totally felt like you know I could do it mentally with it just being me. But once I learned about my injury, then it felt a little bit like a burden because it was just so much pressure. Yeah. Um, I was like, you know, I I totally knew it was going to just be me. But then uh, learning about the broken foot, it it was a lot. It was a lot um, to deal with um, on one psyche. So um, there was a lot of self-talk. There was a lot of talking with my coach bless her heart she's amazing um mm-hmm. I don't know what I would have done without her I was really uh lucky and fortunate to have Olga as my coach because sometimes the coach gymnast pairings don't work out very well um and I was really lucky to have I literally had a team so when people think it was like oh Julie on her own yeah I was the only athlete and I did it by myself but it was really like a team full of people that helped me on my journey. Um, my family, my coach, um, and I had a great um, sports therapist. And I don't think that's talked about enough um, because you can't just know how to deal with this all mentally by yourself. Like you, I think any elite athlete needs the help of a professional, like a sports therapist. Mm -hmm. So um, I was really, and I'm still so happy that I was paired up with a sports therapist because I feel like widely it's talked about now, but it's not, it was not talked about, you know, 10, 11 years ago, but it's so important. Just like the training is important. Just like the physical therapy is important. The mental aspect of it is sometimes even more important than the physical aspect. Um, So I had a great sports psychologist um, that I worked with at the Olympic training center in Lake Placid. And she helped me uh, pretty much like throughout the wild journey of the last couple of years, making it to the Olympics. So um, Mm -hmm. it's important. And, you know, the Russian girls have their sports therapists too. thank God. And 
most most countries have like a full team of people helping like literally individual athlete but you're totally right um it's a very eastern european sport but i think again as we're starting to climb up the ranks um you know the us and other countries are starting to be a force to be reckoned with which is super cool to see um yeah not not saying that i have any favorites but the last olympics (laughs) i was really happy to see the israeli uh win the gold medal that that made me really happy (laughs) yeah yeah i know some people will not like to hear that but um you know with my background i'm also jewish um i was really excited to see her win definitely (laughs) definitely yeah yeah so Talking more about the sports psychology component. So being at the Olympics, there was so much pressure. How did you deal with that pressure? Did you ever get, I mean, you mentioned just how nerve wracking it was and that's totally understandable. It was the Olympics and given the circumstances and everything, how did you deal with that pressure like backstage? Um, I was a very ritualistic athlete. So it sounds kind of crazy, right? But um, I had these things I would I would try to always do um, before competing. Um, the playlist was always very important. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a great playlist that was, you know, it started kind of calm, um, but it would kind of get become more and more motivational as I would get into the warm up and, you know, do my routines um, in, in the backstage carpet. Um, but it's a lot, a lot of self-talk, a lot of visualization, um, which the sports psychologist, um, her name is Mara. Um, so I don't know if she's going to hear this, but Mara, mm-hmm. shout out to you. Um, <laughs> that she really, uh, helped me with. Um, and cause you know, we're all human, so you can't think all the perfect thoughts all the time. Like mm-hmm. you have your little demons and negative voices in the back of your head kind of giving you self-doubt um and that's that's what makes us human right none of us are perfect so um whenever I would hear any like negative voices or negativity or let's say I'm visualizing my routine and sometimes you know you don't just visualize perfect routine sometimes sometimes Mm -hmm. you visualize a drop or mistake where you have common errors happen so it's a lot of practice. It takes a lot of time to master all the visualization and self-talk. Um, a lot of meditation, um, mm-hmm. which I still do today, um, when I'm stressed out or anything like that. Um, a lot of meditation. Um, and it's, and you do these things before, during, and after, you know, before training, during training, after training. And the same thing goes with at the competition before mm-hmm. competition during competition, after competition, because just like you have to train your body, you have to train your mind. Um, and, you know, being also young, um, there are times where I wanted to do all the normal things that my friends did. Um, but I'd also remind myself, like, there's so much time to do all those things. And yeah. now um, I feel so old. I'm 32 now. <laughs> oh, so, wow. um, You're not that yeah. old. In the grand oh, scheme of life. <laughs> no, I know, but it's uh, wild. I remember when I was 22, I was like, oh my God, 22. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's still, it, you, there's there's so much time to do all like the quote unquote normal things that young adults do. Um, mm-hmm. And I wish I could have had my older self now remind my younger self that um, because sometimes, you know, you felt that like, quote unquote FOMO. Yeah. Um, but it was just a lot of practice, a lot of conditioning. Um, just like you stretch and condition the body. Um, you have to also stretch and condition the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's just practice, practice, practice with all the mental right. stuff. Right. Yeah. Super important. Yeah. It's great that you had a sports psychologist then um, because now it is more common to have that. But even to this day, some athletes don't really do it. Um, I think naturally with more experience, you may pick up some of the strategies maybe on your own. 
but definitely having a trained professional guide you through it. Like imagine how much quicker you can come to these strategies that that boost your mental game as opposed to just relying on experience and time, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. I yeah. Also it was important even before I started working with the sports psychologists that USA Gymnastics um, helped me work with um, through the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, even as a younger athlete, I expressed it to my parents, you know, and I was really fortunate that my parents uh, could support me with that too. But I um, started to feel a lot of pressure as a gymnast, never from my family. I was really fortunate that I was never feeling pressure from my family. I was never pushed by my family. They just supported me, which some athletes have too much pressure coming from their family. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have that. I just felt like sometimes the overall overarching arching um, pressure was just a lot for me. So I worked um, a little bit with like a local um, therapist. She didn't necessarily specialize in sports psychology, but I said like, I needed, uh, I needed um, like to work with somebody for sports psychology. So she kind of took her um, knowledge of what she did with her other clients and worked with me in a more with a more like athletic mindset. So even before, um, you know, I was kind of at the top and I was fortunate enough to work with therapists through the Olympic committee, even when I was younger back here at home, um, I started working with one a little bit too, which I think really helped at a young age because again, being an elite athlete at a young age, traveling internationally, um, knowing that you're representing your country. Cause I think I started representing the U S at 11, 11, no way. That Uh, is so young. Yeah. Um, it was a lot. So it's, Mm -hmm. I can't emphasize how important it is to not just do all the physical stuff and the training physically, but also mentally. Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you go to public school throughout your career? So yes and no. So mm-hmm. um, I am from a suburb um, in Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. Um, and I lived in L.A. for a while. So that's where you and I met mm-hmm. um, to Seattle and I coached there. Then I moved to San Francisco for a year and I wasn't really involved with rhythmic gymnastics then. But um, I'm from a suburb in Maryland. Um called uh, Bethesda and the county is Montgomery County and the public school system here is super reputable but super competitive um and again I hope things are different now um so many years later but I did not get any support from my school hmm. when I was training um because it wasn't a school sport and they didn't know what rhythmic gymnastics was that much so mm-hmm. um, Instead of the school trying to work with me, um, a lot of my teachers just would give me Fs and they wouldn't give me extension and they would say it's not their problem um, that I'm turning things in late or I'm gone for a test. So after all those frustrations and I'm a like very generally like focused, hardworking person. So it was really uh, horrible for me um, mentally that I couldn't excel in school because they just wouldn't work with me. And I try to work hard in almost everything I do in life. So it was getting to me. I was really stressed out with it. And eventually I asked my parents, I was like, can I homeschool? And at first they were not super with it. Um, They weren't super into the idea, but as they saw me struggle emotionally and mentally with um, everything going on in school, um, they uh, eventually said, yes, of course, because we want you to be able to have a chance to yeah. complete work versus just being shoved to the side and like not having a choice, but to fail. Um, so, um, I was in school till sixth grade and I did, um, some of my sixth grade year, um, in middle school, but half way through I started homeschooling because that's when I started dealing with some of the issues with the the teachers um at my school and it was public school um and then I homeschooled for the rest of middle school and then um 
my middle, my uh, high school, sorry, rather, um, said that they would work with me. So I went back and I had an abbreviated schedule and everything, but that was the only thing they really worked with me with, um, just allowing the abbreviated schedule. But it was the same issue that I ran into. Like a lot of the teachers didn't want to give me extensions. They didn't accept that I was traveling internationally, um, that I was missing so much school at one time. They wouldn't give me my work in advance because they hmm. that cheating or getting an advantage right so I did the same thing um after I completed my freshman year in high school um in public high school and then after that I was like bye I'm leaving again mm -hmm. so off more to senior year um till I graduated I homeschooled again got it yeah I mean at that level you know it's can't imagine how you would juggle um, both, uh, you know, without that support system and understanding from the school administration. And especially because rhythmic gymnastics is not like a super popular or a school sport, right? It's hard for them to understand, let alone um, even know about the sport, right? Um, so talk to me about retirement, what was that like mentally, emotionally? I know a lot of athletes struggle with this transition out of sport, especially at a super high level when it's basically your life, right? And consumes most of your identity. So how was that for you? Um, At first, it felt very liberating. Um, I felt, you know, because I accomplished my dream and I felt really liberated and I could do all those things right that I was talking about before like mm -hmm. uh, a young life um with all those fun things but that was really short-lived and uh you know you might have heard of the term olympic blues um and I hit it actually pretty hard mm -hmm. um I moved to LA um and for almost a year I was pursuing acting which was fun but I shortly mm -hmm. It was short lived. Um, I realized it wasn't the industry for me just because of it's a pretty toxic industry. Everyone yeah. kind of thought that. Um, so I loved it. And if I would have maybe been willing to deal with all the stuff, the toxicity and everything in the industry, maybe it could have um I could have succeeded, maybe not become like super duper famous or anything, but I was getting work. Um, so that was fun. But I really quickly realized like this is not going to be a healthy environment environment for me. And I think I didn't hit the Olympic blues when I was doing that year of acting because I had that creative outlet. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it felt like I was doing something in a similar way, maybe not as intense with all the training and everything, but I was still performing. And then once that was over and I went to school, um, I hit it really hard. Um, and it lasted, um, it wasn't happening as much when I first started school. Um, but when I was graduating, um, that's when I started to be like, oh, crap, I don't know what I'm really going to do um, once I re once I retire. Oh, my gosh. Once I graduate, um, I don't really know what I want to do. For a while, I thought um, sports broadcasting, but I love sports like rhythmic gymnastics. I love sports that are not as popular in the US. I love figure skating. I mm -hmm. love you know, diving. Um, and I love swimming. That is one commercially um, popular sport that I love. But you think about sports broadcasting and it's sports like American football, right? And which no offense to anybody, but that's not my kind of sport. Mm -hmm. um, Me neither. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I was like, I don't think this is going to be the right industry for me either, because even though I love sports, right, I love athletics, like the popular sports in the U.S. are not the sports that I like typically are into and have a lot of passion for. And my parents were really upset that I didn't go in the sports journalism and broadcasting route because they said, you're such a good performer. You talk really, um, you speak with an articulate way, especially about sports. You're not scared when you're you're interviewed or you're on camera. And they really thought it would, would have been a natural fit for me, which it, you know, it probably would have been, but I do not succeed when I'm not doing something I like or I'm mm -hmm. passionate. Right. I was passionate about rhythmic and I eventually succeeded. And I was like, I have to do something I love. So then um 
I kind of just did what I thought I should do, um, which is coach rhythmic gymnastics because I knew so much about it. But that didn't fill the void either. You know, mm -hmm. I think there was um, some trauma that I had in rhythmic. Um, and uh, I just, I needed to be kind of out of the sport. So I was uh, coaching while I was in college. And then I, I took a coaching job in Seattle, um, helping one of my dear friends friends caught it for long help her be like a co-head coach with her but I was just like I was like this isn't it like I'm not going to be fulfilled being a coach forever like I need to venture out and like open a new door yeah um, so then I was like I just want to be normal <laughs> like I want to get <laughs> out of the big world and I just want to like work from nine to five Monday through Friday and have weekends off um, so then I moved to San Francisco and I was in software sales and mm. hit rock bottom. So uh. I was sitting at a desk all day selling something that I knew nothing about that, which you can fake it till you make it right. But I'm not that kind of person. I don't really <laughs> get, I, um, I only know how to do things from my heart. So I was really, I really hit rock bottom. I just like had a huge identity crisis. Um, I didn't feel like I fit in San Francisco because it's a huge tech hub, right? Yeah. Um, and I just didn't feel like I was with like-minded individuals. Like I love to move. I love to perform. I care about good health, like not just physical health, but mental health. So I, um, I'll do a little rewinding and then going back to the San Francisco moment. Um, when I was, when I moved to Seattle to help my friend be like a co-head head coach and program director, I became a member at an orange theory fitness. Um, and that made me kind of feel like a gymnast again, because it was only one hour. So it's not like a four hour practice. Right. But it was so intense that it just like gave me that, mental boost and physical boost. Like I just felt kind of like an athlete again. So I joined that orange theory fitness and I started to like meet people at the orange theory and I, I made friends. Then I moved to San Francisco and I became a member at an orange theory fitness there as well. Cause they're all around the continental U S and they're um, international as well. And then I started thinking about the idea of like, maybe since I love this so much and I love the community, maybe I should be a fitness professional. So, um, I, I hit rock bottom in San Francisco. I was getting out of a toxic relationship, right? I moved there for a boy, um, mm -hmm. there and it was, you know, at like sales in the sales industry, whether it's software or not, like people love athletes cause they know we work hard and we will, will excel. Um, but I just, I couldn't sit down nine to five and sell software. It just wasn't me. Yeah. After um, taking a leave of absence and working with, again, a therapist and just trying to figure out like, who am I? I was like, okay, let's do some soul searching. Let's, let's do some self-talk again. Let's maybe talk to some of these Orange Theory coaches. Um, I was like, I need to go. I need to leave San Francisco and I want to pursue fitness. So I moved back to the East Coast. Um, I got my personal training certification and then I started coaching at Orange Theory actually. And then three months later, I got um, promoted to becoming the head trainer at one of our franchises here. Um, and then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. So COVID sucked for everybody, right? Um, we quarantined for three months here in Maryland, but then after three months, um, we reopened. Um, but I love the community of Orange Theory Fitness. Um, I love that I can train people who think that they can't do something like I thought I couldn't do something. Um, so it's definitely a smaller scope of things you, you hear like, oh, an Olympian is now just like teaching people or training people at Orange Theory. Um, but it's just so much bigger than that. I, I am really feeling that little void again of being active. So I'm exercising a lot. I'm on my feet a lot. I'm performing on a mic, you know, teaching up yeah. to 45 people at a time. Um, but my favorite part is just 
helping people transform mentally because I've had so many mental transformations on my own. Um, but yes, going back to um, the retirement, it is a very real phase that I think I would say almost every athlete will probably face. It's kind of inevitable because um, you really just know yourself as like, I knew myself as Julie, the athlete, like I, and that's how other people saw me too. They're like, Julie, the gym, gymnast, Julie, the athlete, Julie, the Olympian. Right. Mm-hmm. And then after it was just like, Oh, Julie's normal. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's really tough. Um, and it takes time, uh, to kind of get out of the high of the Olympics, mm-hmm. um, and to kind of realize what, you're going to do next with your life because that honestly is just a quarter of your life and you have so much more God willing and all the things, you know, you stay healthy mentally and physically. Um, so you think like, okay, that's just a quarter of my life. What do I do next? What could, what could my, my hunger that I had as an athlete? Um, so it takes a lot of time. It takes soul searching. It takes work with people. Um, a good support system, uh, people that will be patient because yeah. again, you kind of go through like a spiral, um, and you kind of have to figure out what you're going to do next. So I hit it hard, but I'm really fortunate and lucky to have a job that I love that helps people, um, and a job that I can uh, be active with. So, yeah. um, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a fun job. Um, and I help with the fitness side of things and management side of things of our franchise. So that's pretty fun too. That's wonderful. It really sounds like you've settled into your own now and you found a new passion in that's very much aligned with your athletic background. And I definitely resonate with, um, you know, working from your passion, working from your heart, And because athletes are very, very passionate people, especially if they make it as far as the Olympics, there takes so much sacrifice and so much hard work that can only stem from if you truly love the sport and love what you're doing. So um, I'm so happy that you found a career that you love now. And that's in line with your your essence, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you definitely see uh, gymnast Julie. Like, if you would ever take one of my classes, she's there on the mic. <laughs> see her when you hear her and see her. Like, um, I, I again was a performer as a gymnast. <laughs> when you, when people take my classes, I always I, there's like the motivational side of me mm-hmm. when I'm. T- like I'll, I'll put my motivational tidbits in there and it's all from real life experience. It's not like I'm finding these quotes that I'm like, Oh, I love that. And I love that. Well, that's, that's really inspirational. It's like all stuff I've said to myself, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, it's all stuff that I say to myself to this day. So I say those things. I try to motivate. I try to pump people up. I try yeah. to get people out of their heads. Um, but then it's also, I try to make it fun. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of like a one hour workout, but it's also kind of like a show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I'm also in the fitness industry as a group X instructor. I teach dance fitness and I feel you on motivation and being positive, bringing that positive energy. And um, so Orange Theory, I actually live really, I live in the SF Bay area and I live mm-hmm. like five minutes away from a campus, uh, Orange Theory mm-hmm. campus. And so tell me what exactly does the one hour workout entail? It's very cardio based, okay. right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very cardio based. And so I wish I would have taken classes as cross training when I was a gymnast because my stamina was so bad as a gymnast. Mm-hmm. Like I would be gassed out after my minute 30 second routine. Um, and now my stamina is so much better. Like I can run five miles and be winded, but not gassed out. Right. Um, so uh, orange theory has like three different components of the workout. There's a treadmill portion. There's a rowing portion on a water rower and there's the weight floor portion Um, and so it's all interval training, um, and you strap on a heart rate monitor to see where your heart rate levels are at. 
So in real time, it's science backed and uh, technology tracked as well. So you see what your body's doing in real time. Um, Some people care about obviously like the calories, right? But most people want to see what their heart's doing in real time because the most, uh, I would say, effective type of fitness training when you're not an athlete, when you're just, you know, a normal human being outside of athletics is when you're able to get your heart rate up and down. Um, because the heart is the strongest thing in your month, in your body. That's what you want to think about is the strongest muscle in your body. And you want that to be strong because if your heart's not strong, your body's not going to be strong. So you're tracking your heart rate throughout the whole entire class. Um, and you're seeing what it does in real time. you want to shoot it up for portions of the class and you also want to be able to bring it back down um and so every day is going to be different the workout templates do not ever repeat um and you do intervals on the treadmill um and you also do weight floor sections on the weight floor with weights trx's bosu balls and that also includes um rowing as well so you have the higher impact cardio which is on the treadmill and then lower impact cardio which is great for somebody like me with uh, no meniscus left in her knee um, and a twin labrum in her right hip and acute arthritis in her lower back. Um, So the the rowing is for me, I love doing it, but Mm -hmm. I was also told, and this is what I tell my clients because you, again, going back to, you can do whatever you want to do just so long as you want to do it and you believe it. I was told after my rhythmic gymnastics career that I should never run because if I try to run, uh, I'm going to, always live in pain. But during quarantine, I started to train my body to run, not really outside so much, but on on a treadmill. And our treadmills have this technology where it gives you this flex deck, right? Flexes you up and it gives a lot more to your landing. So it actually takes 40% of your weight out of the landing. So on our Orange Theory treadmills, I can run 20, 30, 40 minutes at a time. Um, and my knee feels good and I don't, I don't live in any kind of pain. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to share that with my members and clients as well. Like, Hey, I was told I'm never going to run and I run. So just, if you want to train, you know, be smart. You don't need to compete or train against anybody, but yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I love it. It's mentally challenging, but also physically challenging. Um and you just kind of hit all the things that you're supposed to do in a one hour class. Um, you do your cardio, you do your resistance training, you do your flexibility as well. Um, so it's, it's really fun. I definitely recommend it. <laughs> yeah. Now that you've, you've told me about it, I'm interested in signing up actually. I mean, I you live should. five minutes away. I would definitely want to do a free trial and see what it's about. I'm trying to get more in shape with cardio, stamina, uh, muscle tone definitely would would love that. Um, very cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, give, definitely give it a shot. Yeah. Um, hopefully, you have an entertaining, fun, inspirational coach too that would coach yeah. you through class. <laughs> definitely, super important. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Julie. This was amazing. Um, oh, thank you. I'm so honored to do these things. Um, the last time I was interviewed was a few years ago. Um, I did something for the Washingtonian magazine when the last Olympics was happening. Um, and I just, if I can have any part of, you know, helping athletes, young athletes out, I always say yes and raise my hand because I just remember when I was that little girl with no confidence. Um, so if I can ever resonate with somebody that lacks that kind of confidence, but has a dream, it's, I always feel like I, I really want my voice to be heard so I can, you know, maybe at least help one more individual. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. What would you say to young Julie, if you could go back? Oh gosh, young (laughs) Julie, she was, she was always just wanting people to accept her in the rhythmic gymnastics community. <laughs> so um, I would say, Julie, you can do anything as long as your heart wants it. Um, people don't mean the bad when they tell you you can't do something. People are just acting out of fear 
and their own insecurities when they tell you you can't do something. So just make sure you don't take it personally. Love it. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> definitely words to live by. Um, thank you so much. This was wonderful. And I can't wait to get your story out to more people. Thank you so much. And anytime you want to chat, I'm always here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have You're a welcome. great rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you guys so, so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Athlete Voices podcast. We have new episodes coming every Tuesday, so stay up to date with that by clicking subscribe. You can follow us on our Instagram at Athlete Voices and check out our website, athletevoices.net, where we post feature articles about the guests on this podcast. If you like this podcast, please give us a rating and leave us a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. I'll talk to you guys next week.